Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name's Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode entitled The Neurobiology of Attachment. Uh, There's a lot to get into on that, but a little sidebar, I will tell you, if you haven't just yet, we are just days away from Grace Story uh, Conference 2020. And if you haven't gotten your admission there just yet, uh, your your registration done, head on over to gracestoryministries.com and you can get that done. If you are unable to attend this year, we understand there's been a lot going on. There's a select few that are uh, coming to the conference. Uh, we've limited that. Um, but if you're, uh, uh, there are a few seats available uh, left, so you can sign up for those. But if you're not able to go to the conference, there is for purchase a live stream available um, where you can uh, look in on and not miss out on the, the content. Certainly you'll miss out on the, the community aspect of the conference and being there in person. But uh, the content, you'll be able to be in all seven sessions there. Um, uh, so make sure that you uh, head on over to GraceStoryMinistries.com and look at all the options and get your registration complete if you haven't already. Our topic today, the neurobiology of attachment, it sounds complicated. And at times in this episode, it does get a little complicated, I'll be honest. But uh, Scott Schneider, who I'll tell you about in a minute, is going to be walking us through that. Um, and he does it in a, in a great way uh, with lots of examples from his, uh, his own professional counseling um, that he's done with individuals. But one of the things I thought of as, as I looked over this uh, conversation was I thought of my daughter, Rosie. Um, and recently, she got into a box of Q-tips. And my goodness, she's only 18 months old. She'll be 18 months old next month. But she is mobile. And she is, um, I don't know, she's not an organizer. She's a de-organizer. She's very, very good at it. And she takes these Q-tips. I have been finding them everywhere for the last week, week and a half, just in the most random places. And so when I find these these Q-tips everywhere, it's, it's kind of maddening. I'm not entirely convinced that she's not doing it on purpose just to, you know, mess with me in some way because it's, it's the most random spots and they are everywhere. But I was thinking about that in terms of, um, you know, the neurobiology of attachment, what, what we're going to learn in this episode. And, and I was thinking about my reactions to finding those random things that she puts everywhere or how I speak into her life and, and, and how I approach uh, talking to her about you know, things she shouldn't be getting into or places she can't go or objects she should not be uh, grabbing, you know, the dangers or, or the boundaries that I'm putting in her life. And her reactions back, our, our dynamic back and forth is informing our bond for the rest of our lives, even at this young age. We're going to talk in this episode about, you know, the, the brain growing and downloading uh, so much in those first several years of, of life. And I'm thankful that, that I personally have a resource through Grace Story Ministries like this podcast that gets me thinking about things like that. 
and not only helps me understand, you know, my journey of, of restoration for myself, but also informs how I break cycles and look into the next generation of my own family. And it informs how we do life. It informs how we interact with each other. And it changes that dynamic forever. I'm excited about that type of effect that this this podcast has and the resources that come out of it. Um, if you have something like that, that, that this podcast is affecting in your life, I'd love to hear about it. You can send me an email, nate at greatstoryministries.com. Um, I'd love to hear your story and maybe how the podcast has affected you. Uh, send us an email or message us on Instagram. Uh, we're Gray Story Podcast on Instagram as well. Now, our guest today is Scott Schneider. He is a licensed counselor with his Master of Arts in Counseling. Uh, he is working out of Counseling Alliance in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, he is a certified sex addiction therapist, um, a developmental and relational trauma therapist, uh, and, and the list goes on and on. And he's going to be able to help walk us through this topic of the neurobiology of attachment as an expert in the field. So let's go to that conversation right now. So Scott Schneider, we got you here for a conversation and I have been looking forward to this one. Uh, we're going to be talking about the neurobiology of attachment and preparing for this particular episode. I did look up, um, you know, a little bit about it and I found an evidence-based article, um, that had this quote in it and, and I just want to read it and then, you know, kind of set you off to, to give your thoughts. But it said, a child attaches to the caregiver regardless of the quality of care received. I, I was blown away by that, but I mean, we're going to talk more about that. But what does that quote, that sentence mean to you in context of neurobiology of attachment? I'd like to throw one question back at you, Nate. What shocked you? What got your attention about that? What was, you know, like that? that energy, like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, um, when I think of somebody, you know, that, that is not treated well, it seems like you wouldn't go back to that source of maltreatment, but according to evidence, a child in, in an environment like that, you know, from the ages of zero to three and on through middle school and, and, they actually attach to the caregiver regardless of whether they're be, being treated well or not. And attachment, I, I, I see it as, it sounds like something that should be nurturing. So it sounds counterintuitive for there to be attachment where there's abuse. Right, yeah. And um, so I'll start off with a quote by Kurt Thompson. He wrote several things, but uh, the one that we used in spiritual formation during the counseling program was called anatomy of the soul. He's a Christian psychiatrist and neuroscientist actually does doctorate at Wright state, but he had this, this famous quote and it says, we were born into this world looking for someone who's looking for us. We know we're in a dependent position that we need to trust someone to take care of us, to handle our hearts well, to nurture us, to uh, consider our needs and wants important, and to develop my, the self, the true self. That goes right along with what Dr. Butts was saying in his episode about 
birthrights and boundaries and healing our core issues, one of those birthrights he talked about was the 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 right to be protected, uh, yes. and, and because we're all vulnerable in that. Um, yes. But out of this, you know, it's even if we're not, we're still going to be attached to that that person or that individual, that caregiver, um, regardless of how they treat us. Yeah. And, and, you know, it goes into adulthood, you know, there's, there's something, and, you know, my own personal story is my mother, um, because of her trauma, wasn't available to attach emotionally to me. And so I didn't realize it until I got into this, that even into adulthood, I was looking for ways to still connect with my mother that science supports that. And, and so it's that strong, it's an innate thing to be attached to these caregivers. And, and so we know we're in a dependent position. And the interesting thing is when we're born, according to Dr. Alan Shore's work out of UCLA, who does a lot of develop on the, the right brain development. He's got a teaching on the right brain development in the first thousand days, which includes 270 days in utero and then the first 700, 730 days outside. What he says is that the child does not have a maturing left brain until about age two. So all the communication is done through the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere is language, science, math, logic, reason, rationale, all the things in the West that we hold dear. And it's linear, but the right hemisphere goes vertical. It knows me, it perceives me. So perception is very important word. So in the right hemisphere, we perceive, we intuit. It's where intuition comes from. We discern. So when we discern God's will, it's not a bunch of knowledge in our left hemisphere. It's a way to discern in our right hemisphere. It's to know. So when the Bible talks about knowing, to know, that's a right hemisphere thing, to perceive, to, to see, to understand. So my right hemisphere knows me. It goes vertically. It understands me and perceives me. And so Dr. Siegel, Shore's colleague at UCLA, they're both interpersonal neurobiologists, says this, that to have a fully developed me, to have a fully developed self, it must come through a we, which he determines and has named MWE, M-W-E. <laughs> and at the basis of that, it's the child perceiving the mother, perceiving the child. So it's a right brain to right brain loop. It's not a metaphor, it's real. Mm. And it's this way of communication it's called attunement in attachment, attunement in parent and child. It's also the same dynamic that we refer to as cleaving in marriage. The same communication, emotional connection, a union, the two becoming one, the two shall become one flesh. It's literally that. And then our dysregulation, our emotional regulation or dysregulation, we're supposed to learn co-regulation of emotions not self-regulation so that's that's actually where i was as you're talking i'm thinking about that can you let's camp out there just for a second and maybe talk sure. about the connection with the right brain and how that helps with regulation 
um, and, and how we view the world and, and how we uh, uh, interact in our relationships. Sure. So the right hemisphere, uh, the child has to communicate through the right hemisphere. So the mother has to, and father, but we'll just use the mother for traditional purposes. The father has intuition and has all this available. It's been studied, but the West, we conditioned emotional awareness out of the, the, the males. And so a lot of males are shut down, but we're totally capable of that. And we have to get reconnected to that to actually connect with our wives. So the, the child, for example, will fuss. Now it's real important that the mother or the, the parent responds promptly to that cry. So the, say the mother comes over to the child and through this right brain to right brain loop, discerns the needs and wants of the child. So what Siegel says is that we're actually hardwired to perceive another human being's central nervous system, to know what someone is thinking and feeling when we're truly aware, when we're truly present in that moment, we're capable of that. And if you look at it, when God says to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone, why is that? Why did Adam need another human relationship to be fully human? So the science really explains that. And, and so the child, it begins in, in childhood, right out of the womb. The child expresses uh, a need, a want. The mother goes up and holds the child and through facial expressions, body language, but it's even deeper than that. It's a right brain to right brain connection that includes intuition, includes perceiving that child, to perceiving that child's needs and wants, to go and discern what the child is expressing. It's, it's literal, it's not metaphorical, it's literal. So the, the mother says, okay, the child's not hungry, it's not thirsty, it doesn't need a diaper change, oh. She just wants to be held. She's lonely. She's sad. And mother just picks up and with love and acceptance holds us and together they co-regulate emotions. Now, what happens if the mother doesn't respond? Let him cry it out. So, you know, that's that was a, a phrase used a lot in, you know, generations before us and some even now. So what is that expressing? It's expressing that the child's needs and wants aren't important. So the child is developing itself through the, the actions of the parents. So if the parents don't think that their needs and wants are important, has that child to grow up thinking that his needs and wants are important? So then the child can develop uh, either too dependent codependency or any dependent, needless and wantless. And so what happens is the child can perceive what the mother is thinking and feeling. The child is very aware of the emotional state of that parent. So if mother is frustrated, angry, depressed, the child discerns that, intuits that because it's got a functioning right brain. It's capable of perceiving and intuiting and discerning. So the child always takes the blame for the parent's actions and emotions and thoughts. So for example, if the mother is depressed, 
the child will take it on as its own. She's depressed because I'm not good. If I were a better kid, I'm too needy. I'm too clingy. I cry too much. I eat too much. Now you can say, well, they're only one month old, but all of that makes sense and gets stored in the body and, and will be there. And then we'll be able to discover that in adulthood, but all that gets stored in the body. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. So all that's part of implicit you know, memory. And if you talk to Dr. Rick Butts much, he'll let you know that sometimes trauma can be disclosed through working with a client that happened in the womb. Hmm. It's interesting. We're an interesting lot. It, and I know, I know a lot of this is emerging over the last, you know, couple decades. So, mm-hmm. um, but we do know that, you know, that time between, you know, zero and three, four years of age, it's a time of significant brain growth and brain development. Um, right. So can we just step back a little bit um, sure. and, and take a look at that, that growth? And I, we've had some people, especially um, after we after we talked about um, ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences with LaShonda Sugg. Um, that's in episode five, um, kind of talking about the, the trauma and how it affects the brain during those times. And the, uh, people have referred to it in different ways, the, the programming or the hardwiring or the actual physical makeup of the brain, depending on the trauma and, and the meaning attached to it, the actual physical makeup can be different. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to kind of step back and, and, and talk into that about w- what does that mean? Because we have people really wondering, okay, so if, if, if I have trauma, do I have brain damage? What does that even mean? <laughs> um, yeah. And so what does that look like for there to be neurological changes based on our experiences and, and the meaning we attach to trauma? Sure. So first of all, I want to give props and kudos to LaShonda Sugg. She's all that. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan. <laughs> Me so too. You listen to what she says because she's the real deal. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, I want to bring in Dr. Butts again, Rick Butts. And, you know, this is one thing that he that he taught. And he said, you know, trauma is anything less than nurturing. Okay. So when you take that, we all have trauma. Mm-hmm. So he used to do a thing. Uh, in training, when we were going through trauma training, and we had to be our own, you know, we were clients, we had to go through our own trauma. A lot of us thought we didn't have any trauma, but he showed us that we did. And so he's, he's teaching and is right in the middle. And he's just going through his thing, then all of a sudden, he slams his hand on something said, Why did you spill that milk? He said, Can you feel that? That's energy. You just received energy. Trauma is energy stored in the body. So you make sense of that. That was an energy. It was information. You screwed up. You you made a mistake and you really made your dad mad. And so so that gets stuck in. And so we take in all of these things. So let's go back to... Uh, the the parent's response 
to, to the child's needs. Let's just go with neglect. So let's just say that the parent's inconsistent. Sometimes they respond quickly to the child's cry. Sometimes they wait. Inconsistent parenting, inconsistent response, according to Dr. Shore and his research, they've done all sorts of brain scans. I mean, he's big. He really furthered John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth work in attachment theory, but it's now science. Oh, yeah. And that supported by brain scans, that ability to actually get inside a active brain is what has just blown this up over the last couple of decades because the technology wasn't there until right. recently. Right. So everything's it's all science. That's a great time to be a counselor. We don't <laughs> have to work with theory so much. What about theory? Ah, theory. Let's go with the science. What's the brain scans telling us? Science is catching so, up. Yeah. And so. Uh, it's really nice and, and doing the, the work of attachment. So what happens is you, you mentioned the first, you know, brain development, the first few years. Uh, what Dr. Lipton and others say is that the, for the first seven years until age seven, our brain has two brain waves basically going on. It's delta and theta. So alpha is the first stream of consciousness that comes in at age seven, which really accentuates Piaget and Erickson and all those, those theories that now we're, we're finding some science to support all those things. And so what happens in delta and theta? It's basically a hypnotic state. So you talked about how the child processes. And I think that that's kind of a misnomer a little bit. So I want to just... You know, it's hard to, to find terms of all or nothing. Mm -hmm. So let's not look at processing. What they say in the first seven years is everything that we taste, touch, smell, see, experience is downloaded into our system. And our subconscious programming, you know, Ryan talked about reprogramming, is programmed. So the Bible calls this and refers to this time as the pattern of this world. So the word pattern in scripture is a long Greek word is like sasamatizo. <laughs> so some counseling clinical terms that we use for um, the programming is schema, mm -hmm. script, program, pattern. But sasamatizo can also be translated correctly as matrix. So Lipton says the matrix wasn't science fiction. It was a documentary. Just a little food for thought. So everything's downloaded. So why can a two-year-old learn three languages? Hmm. You know, when we have trouble learning one, because it's downloaded. It doesn't go through consciousness. It's just downloaded. So that's the script. And, and so we, we have to conform to uh, the script, the environment that's given. So goes back to our biggest need coming out of the womb is self-preservation, love, safety, security. If safety and security isn't there, our brain's going to go through a, a lot of pruning. So for example, I did a paper in, in uh, the counseling program and I did media effect on childhood. And, and in my research, I found that they said that uh, extreme poverty equals poor academic performance. Why is that? 
is because the child is not safe. It doesn't know when the next meal is going to come from. It doesn't know if it's going to be safe or secure. So when you're so concerned as a child about safety, if your brain starts putting things that are not used, if you don't use it, you lose it. And one of those things that are pruned are the learning neurons. So what the research showed that if you take that child at age six months, put them into a quality daycare that works on love, security, safety, and attachment, from age six months to age 54 months, it reverses that dynamic. It reverses that truth because the brain then begins to, to flourish in the learning neurons. So the whole brain is, is developed. So we are geared coming out knowing that love, connection, belonging is part of our self-preservation, that we have to belong to be safe. We have to be accepted to be safe, and that goes with love. So when trauma happens, anything less than nurturing, when trauma happens, then all of a sudden, what the baby experiences is that love and connection aren't always safe, can't always be trusted. So that's where most of us come out of childhood is some sense of, because none of us were raised by Jesus, everything that our parents have, we get. Now we know that memories are passed down through, through the DNA from generations above, it really, you know, the third and fourth generations, the sins of the fathers are passed down the third and fourth generation. That's literal through DNA and everything. And so we get what our parents have. And now we have to go in and, and now that, that lack of love, that trust and love, that love isn't safe, connection, vulnerability isn't safe. So now we're guarded with every relationship that we go into adulthood for the rest of our lives until we heal. So why do we have trouble with marriages? So let, let me ask you something to, to bring it kind of back to, yeah. to a thought with this, because it doesn't sound like, um, cause I think it's when we think of trauma and then how that affects the brain, the natural inclination is to think damage, mm-hmm. but it sounds like from what you're saying and what, what evidence shows in in research is that it's just downloading and you're forming pathways and neurons and you're bringing it in so stored memory to answer people that say you know maybe depending on the level of my trauma i have brain damage and that's what mris show brains are different um would it be fair to say it's just a downloading and maybe some reprogramming is necessary uh, you or or is there an actual brokenness that can't be fixed? Just to put it bluntly. Well, when you get into some some severe physical trauma, that's a whole different game, okay? And you you will have some some brain stuff there, and um, so it's a, a multivaried. And I'm looking looking more at the the relational trauma. Gotcha. You know, we think trauma is this, but when if we really understand the relational trauma, then we can start to see humanity. Then we can start to, to see how we need to come together and, 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 and uh, live and function as human beings and, and the way our bodies were designed. But yeah, there's definitely some specifics 
that are different than relational trauma. You know, traumatic brain injuries are different. Sure. I will say this, that's way beyond my pay grade to go into <laughs> that aspect of things. But as I listen, and there's a lot of work being done that says that there's our, brain, our brains are so full of plasticity. I mean, it's able to change that even with traumatic brain injury, they're doing a lot of work to begin to heal some things. So, so I'll say it there. That's as far as I just exhausted my knowledge on traumatic brain injury. <laughs> Well, and, and, and my, my knowledge on, on traumatic brain injuries is limited to, you know, what I've seen in the emergency department and caring for it initially and then setting him up to the ICU. But um, you're right. And, and I think what I'm getting at is just that there is there is hope. And if your your processes, pathways and programming um, your was anything less than nurturing and that is uh, kind of, you know, going out into the long-term effects that you see in your life, um, or maybe that you're just now kind of realizing there is hope. Uh, yeah. and, and Ryan has talked about, um, and we're going to try to do a whole series on this, the reparenting, um, sure. the reparenting and, and can you maybe from that aspect, talk a little bit about the neurobiology of attachment sure. with reparenting what is what does that look like without giving away everything in reparenting which is its own topic i'm oh, yeah, sure 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 well let me go into a little bit of let me give an example of how the the brain holds in some things yeah so let's let's say a three-year-old goes up to a stove puts his hand on the stove a hot stove so the midbrain the amygdala the limbic system perceives a threat, hot stove, threat to the hand. So what does the amygdala do? It sends the brain, the threat signal down to the brain stem. Say threat, 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 because it processes like 400 million bits a second. Wow. Something enormous. And then what it does is it shuts off the frontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, the relational part of the brain, because it processes at a much slower pace. So the brain stem then engages the child and causes him to take his hand off the stove to keep him safe. It's the brain stem, the central nervous system that reacts to take his hand off the stove. Once he's to safety, then the amygdala sends the brain, the, the signal up to the prefrontal cortex, re-engages the full brain, and then the prefrontal cortex will say, ouch. So that's, even though that, that seems to happen simultaneously, it's worlds apart as far as speed. So what happens now? Now that hot stove is in his hardwired self-preservation system stored in the body. And every time he encounters that, the brain brings up that memory and, and, and invites him and, and warns him of the danger. So what does something like that look like? Um, if it's the the relationships or or the the protection how does that translate into to an adulthood um how does that come back up for somebody okay so let's just say um i'll give the the, the example that dr bruce lipton gave he's a cell biologist that works with uh you know a lot of this this type of thing and the downloading so say you're four you're with your dad you're in walmart and you want something and your dad says no and you fuss a little bit and he says, no, you don't deserve that. 
well, you know, the parents get excited because they're, they're feeling they might be embarrassed in Walmart, you know, as everyone sees their ch child throwing some type of tantrum and that's going to reflect on them. So they get some energy to try to stop it. So they, they transfer that energy and say, no, you don't deserve it. So before age seven, that's now downloaded into a part of himself into his program. So the programming is a database. So when consciousness comes at age seven, we start looking and interpreting through our program. So if our program says that we don't deserve, then every situation we get into that we might have an opportunity to get promoted, to take a new job, to go on to something great, then our program says, rejects that. It doesn't accept that file because it doesn't, it, the file of you don't deserve that will only recognize and accept something that it recognizes. So you're, that child is more than likely to go through adult life saying, I don't deserve whatever it might be and begins to see and interpret all the events through the database that we have. That's what harms. So no matter what that database is filled, it will only accept files that it, that it understands that it you know, receives. It's just like a computer database. It'll reject a file that's not familiar. That, that consciousness becoming aware around that seven or eight really makes a lot of sense why my wife has a lot of issues with her counseling of middle schoolers at the school she works mm -hmm. at. Yeah. I mean, what a time to be alive if you think back to middle school. Unfortunately for the middle schoolers now, it's all on photos and Instagram and Facebook and it's there for eternity for some of them. But I mean, my goodness, the the emotions and the the realizations and the conversations that come out of that, it, it really does make sense um, right. as you're becoming yeah. aware. So take abandonment, for example. How does it how does that go in? So you know, abandonment is not just some physically leaving. It could be emotional abandonment. It could be, you know, abandonment in a lot of different capacities and varieties. So uh, working with adults who have abandonment issues. So let's just say you got a, a woman whose husband, which is kind of a real story um, that I'll add a few things to, comes in from school at night, she's been home for five hours and he's working and going to school to finish his, his college up. And he has a tough day and he comes in and he just sort of says, hi, honey, and doesn't make eye contact with her. So she's got abandonment issues, you know, from all that childhood programming. So how is she going to interpret that lack of eye contact? Because eye contact is a way of acceptance, of a way of, of connection so what does that state say to her? So she sees lack of eye contact. He doesn't make eye contact with her through the lens of abandonment. So what is she interpreting that event to be? He's getting ready to leave. That's all it takes. I mean, I, I've worked with this before. It's all it takes. And because she's interpreting through that. And then she starts going with extreme emotional reaction, acting as though he's leaving. And he doesn't have a clue what's going on. So every event, action gets interpreted through the lens on what we believe. We project what we believe onto everybody. She believes she's going to be abandoned and just lack of eye contact 
says that that's true. See, it's happening again. Let me let me ask you this with with those those thoughts, um, with these types of attachment disorders or style or whatever you you want to put on it, can these become like self fulfilling prophecies that? As you go through, okay, because I feel this way, it's going to happen, and then your behavior makes it happen. Um, In short, yes. And how do I avoid that? If so, I'm say I'm listening to this episode, and I'm thinking, okay, I feel better now that we've talked about. Uh, I don't have brain damage. That's great. The neurobiology. Yeah. If I have an MRI scan, I don't have brain damage, but I have a programming or download issue, which may need some. Uh, some new information to inform my actions. Uh, how do I, now that I am aware of how my childhood and things that seemingly are no big deal, and some may tell us are no big deal, can inform big decisions, big life moments, big relationships. Now that I am aware, how do I keep those from becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy and keep myself from being doomed to repetition uh, of these types of behaviors? Yeah, great question. So, so the, the situation that I just gave, before she starts becoming aware, she's not aware that that's how she's interpreting. She's interpreting that he doesn't love her anymore or his love is dying. That, that's what she's interpreting. She's, she's not aware that's coming through that lens. So she's taking and saying, you don't love me anymore. And she's convinced that that's true because that's what life has taught her. So, um, so that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and then, then everyone's behavior fulfills what we believe about ourselves. We project, that's how we, that's how all humans live. I mean, it, I don't even know how we talk to each other and understand what each other's saying. So we talked about a right brain to right brain connection in childhood. How do we heal? And, and first we got to realize that something's gone awry. So she comes in and says, okay, I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble staying with relationships. I keep going from one to another and I don't want to do that anymore. So she comes into that. So the wound is in the right brain development. It's in the attunement. So what Dr. Shore says that the therapeutic alliance, Carl Rogers said this a long time ago, that we must show unconditional positive regard, acceptance, non-judgment, and unconditional you know, love type of thing, person-centered. Well, all of the attachment science has shown that to be true. So when a client comes in, First, you have to be aware that something's gone awry and saying, hey, let's discover this. So we go into the discovery and we go through, you know, childhood development and things like that. We find out and we get the story straight. So how do we heal from that? The first thing to do is remember that that right brain to right brain connection, attunement, relationships, vulnerability, love is not safe. I can't trust it. So when she comes into my office, and she feels accepted when she feels no judgment, when she receives unconditional positive regard, when she receives empathy and her, uh, her right hemisphere then begins to intuit 
and to perceive. So what's going to happen in the therapeutic alliance is she's going to perceive me perceiving her. So I have to be in conscious awareness. I have to be in tune. I have to engage my right brain. I have to look and try hard to be in tune with her right hemisphere, with her thoughts and feelings. And when she does that, it creates that right brain to right brain loop. Dr. Shore says this, the therapeutic alliance is a right brain to right brain connection. And, he, and healing will only come through empathy. Now, empathy is a part of the prefrontal cortex responsibility. The prefrontal cortex, you know, the four major things that I, that I use that's, effect, that, that's uh, relevant in counseling is for love, kindness, compassion, and empathy. And so when I'm in conscious awareness and I don't see anything a threat and I go in and give her empathy, I put myself and see from her perspective. I feel her pain and I validate her pain. She just now, maybe for the first time, had a safe right brain to right brain connection. And that's part, that's the first step of the process is to give an, an experience that says something different than what childhood said. So it sounds like that's almost kind of an overview or a snippet of what reparenting kind of is in a way. I, I know there's a lot more there, but to what I'm hearing you say in response to that question of how do I break this uh, self-fulfilling process, um, it sounds like it's awareness is not a bad thing when it's coupled with intentionality. Right. We have to be aware. If we're not aware, like Bessel van der Kolk said, uh, the biggest disconnection we have is we don't know what we're feeling anymore because our body's holding all this. So when I see someone, Dispenza says that whenever we have an emotion, emotions are the end result of a past experience. And so we have this emotion and we have this surge of energy. The brain just brought a memory that's similar to something in the present. So what we're literally doing is we're interpreting the present through that past experience. That's basically how AI learns. So it's, it's diagnosing everything through learned experience. But that doesn't mean that that's what's going on now. So I'll give you an example of this and we'll go into, this is part of the healing. I had a couple, lots of infidelity, several decades. And so we're getting ready for a session and we start the session and she says, you know, you know what he did when he first came in? He comes in, he gives me a half a hug and maybe a kiss on the cheek. He doesn't even make eye contact with me. He goes down, puts his laptop down, opens it up and starts working on his emails and his computer right before our session. I'm tired of it. He does this all the time. He doesn't care about me. So that's how we started the session. And I, I listened and I validated those feelings. I said, of course. I mean, you have reason to believe that. That's what's been happening for 40 some years and you're tired of it. Your feelings are valid. Life has taught you that. I said, let's put the bookmark on that. And then I went to him and I said, so you tell me what happened. Give me your story. And he says, well, I walked in, I gave her half a hug, a little kiss on the cheek, and I went down and put down my laptop. 
I opened it up and I looked at the time and it was 3.39. I got 21 minutes before I meet with you to tie up all the loose ends so I can be fully present in our, in our counseling sessions because this is important to me because I want to connect with my wife. She interpreted through the past. And if we don't slow that down, and if we don't ask what's going on in that moment, and we just use the past is going to just recreate our future, you know, we're just going to, the future is going to be a recreation of the past. She would have missed one of the greatest I've loved views she's had in several years. So through your example there, it's obviously a powerful example, but I can see how it would be difficult for any person to acknowledge that there are other realities besides their own. Sure. Even with perspective, even with awareness, which makes this even more difficult um, to, to, to know about and to, to see um, and to allow into your life. There are other realities besides the one that I see because um, perception is a reality. Um, exactly. Which is why it is our reality. And, and that's why we need absolute truths from scripture to inform those realities. But let me, let me ask you this, someone who's thinking that and they're, they're hearing what you're saying and they've listened to the episodes of this, this podcast. And they're still like, wow, you guys have some interesting stuff. Um, but I think you're putting a little bit too much emphasis on that childhood stuff. Um, you're putting a little too much emphasis on our experiences. Um, I'm not one of those people that says you should just get over it. There's something there, but uh, I mean, you guys are maybe going a little far. Um, I don't have issues like that. I don't have trauma. Uh, what, get, speak to those people for a moment uh, and your thoughts on those that may say, eh, I, I don't buy it. Yeah. Well, to be honest, if you're in that spot, um, there's really not much to do. Something has to, to come to your awareness that something's wrong. And uh, it's going to come from a consequence in life. If you realize, you know, if you're in that spot, if you want to take scripture into it and say that nothing's wrong, but you're a fallen individual. Uh, Paul says, we only see through a glass darkly. Paul says, we only know in part. So when we think that we don't have issues, we're actually denying scripture, aren't we? We're actually not accessing our fallen humanity. But one of the greatest prayers is Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To say, hey, I'm a sinner. Let's start there. I live in a fallen world. I don't see everything correctly. I only know in part. I want to be full. I want more. I want to heal. Until we realize scripture is God drawing us into, wooing us into the pattern of this world or out of this pattern of this world to find his adventure, then we're going to stay within that. What that is, is this left brain non-relational functionality. So if you're in your left brain towards just about doctrines and all this stuff, and we're trusting our doctrine, I'll show you someone who's afraid of a relationship and who's not in touch in emotional connection. 
So l- let me take but, it even a step further uh, and, yeah. and, and say, so, cause I can imagine someone's hearing what you're saying. Like, okay, you're coming on strong. I, okay. Uh, but listen, I, I don't, it's not that I don't understand, you know, I live in a fallen world, but I'm not broken. I'm high functioning. I don't have these issues you keep talking about. And it's almost like you think everybody should have an issue. Um, what, what is it that makes this content valuable to me? Cause I don't see anybody getting hurt by who I am. You know, to be honest, when someone is there, you just sort of say, okay, we'll talk to you soon. And, and, and really because the people who come to me are someone who says something has gone awry. And when we do that, that's the first step to healing. If we're unaware of our problems, there's nothing I can do that's going to change that. But if you want to come and talk about it, if you want to, you know, look at all your relationships, look at any negative consequences, look at the people. Do you have close relationships? You know, a lot of the men are in that spot. Do your wives feel connected to you? Are you emotionally connected to your to your spouse, to your kids? I'll get answers like emotions don't fix tractors. <laughs> so it really, but you know, pride comes before a fall. And for us stuck in pride and narcissism in, in the self, uh, it's very difficult to deal with. And until that person comes and says, Jesus, son of God, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner there's really no place to go. Yeah. Those people don't come into my office usually. Well, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they don't. And, and it'd be hard to get through to an individual like that because of exactly what you're talking about. Their formation of their actual brain processes has now informed how they view the world and how they make choices and how they make decisions. Um, and how they view their relationships and yeah, I mean, um, that's something where maybe the grace of God, uh, just comes into play a little bit. I'll give you an, a little example. If you got time, I had a couple and, uh, they were in their 30, around 30 and both come from Christian homes. His parents had taken on the, the value of Matthew 25 being the sheep, not a vow of poverty, but, uh, a, a uh, a vow of simpleness, simplistic. So um, he loved his parents and he came in and he said, you know, his, his goal is to become wealthy and it's gone. And, but the vow is, and John Eldridge who wrote Wild at Heart said, if you want to know the wound, it's right below the vow. And his vow was, I'll never be poor. So where did that come from? His parents were godly people. His wife loved his parents, but there was some shame in that. And he was shamed at school for only having one or two pairs of pants, for not having these things up to date. So he took on the shame at school and social for his parents' decisions. That doesn't mean bad bad intent. Matthew 25 is one of my favorite verses. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the things that I want to, to model that you know, and to, and to be Jesus to the world, but it, it caused him some, some harm. So he would shut down his emotions. He was totally shut down. And, you know, it took a few sessions before he would actually admit that. 
And so what was going on was when he would get in his quest for validation, his quest for validation was if I'm wealthy, then I'm a real deal. You know, I've arrived. And every time he started to get into that automation of securing his own value, he was not noticing his wife. His wife was drowning. And his wife was saying, I'm drowning here. They were, they were together for 13 years. I'm drowning. I'm drowning. And he's like, we've got money in the bank. We've got a great business. We got going. How could you be complaining? But they came in and, you know, and it was tough to get past that. And so I want to use that, if you don't mind, to, yeah. to illustrate some of the healing part of it and what this looks like. And when we talk about cleaving and perceiving. So one day she hits him up the side of the head with the kitchen sink. That was my phrase. He's over there and she just let him have it verbally. And he's, re he's not reacting one iota. And so we had a pretty good, you know, working relationship. And I looked at him and I said, do you feel that arrow? He's like, no. I said, come on, you didn't feel that arrow? No. And I said, you had to feel that arrow. I felt the arrow. In fact, she just hit you up the side of the head with the kitchen sink. You're telling me you didn't feel that. And he's like, well, I felt it. And I said, oh, and then you went to shut down again. I said, what did you hear her say? And, she, and he said, I heard her say that I was a failure here. I was doing this bad. And I was like, oh, you heard that. I said, I didn't hear that at all. because so I'm sitting in the, in the objective seat. They're in the subjective experience. And he sort of sarcastically said, so what did you hear? And I just looked at him and she was in the corner of my eye here. And I said, I heard that she needs you. And my voice lowered and softly said, she needs you. And as soon as I said that, I saw it out of the corner of my eye. She burst in weeping. Now, if you would have asked her in that moment what she meant, she would have said, you heard my words. I meant everything I said. So he was interpreting the words, and he wasn't able, through that subjective experience, he wasn't able to see beyond the words. He wasn't able to see the core message because it really lined up with who he thought he was, that he was a failure. And so... His wife is crying and he's looking at me and I keep going like this, you know, look at your wife. And he wouldn't do it. And finally I said, look at your wife. So what happened here, Nate, is they looked and they gazed in each other. And their eye contact, which is attachment, which is part of attachment, eye contact, tone of voice, physical contact, that's all part of bonding and attachment. So they were looking at each other gazed in this connection and all of a sudden this man who was shut down with emotion his face got red and a tear trickled down so what was going on in that moment she was perceiving him perceiving her she felt him feeling her pain that's a right brain to right brain loop that's cleaving that's connection that's empathy that was going on there. And then all of a sudden, 30 seconds, she looked away. And I said, you looked away, what happened there? And we talked about love isn't safe. She said, I can't trust it. 
she couldn't trust that that was true. It's everything she wanted, but she was afraid of trusting again. So this is how that worked as a reparenting situation and shame reduction. So what Eldridge says and Wilder Hardy said, the little girl was for her father. Do you see me? Am I beautiful? Do you see me for who I am, not for what I do, not performance-based value? So her wound was, was in part, you know, a bumper sticker of she wasn't noticed or valued by her husband. So when her husband, or by her father, so when her husband didn't notice her or value her, then she was left with this. My father doesn't notice me or value me. My husband doesn't notice me or value me. It must be me. I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. That's the message of childhood. The husband's actions reinforced her belief. So when the husband notices her, perceives her empathy and that connection, now she's in this spot that says, my father didn't notice me. My husband adores me. It must be my father's issue. And the shame gets reduced and placed back onto her father's responsibility for not noticing his daughter. So the cleaving of the husband begins to tell a different narrative. And it's the same right brain to right brain loop that's called cleaving in, in, in marriage. That's attunement in childhood. That's where the wound was broken. That's the conduit to where the healing is going to happen. So I, I love that example for, for multiple reasons. But one, it, it gives people a little view into what the process is in, in counseling. If nothing else, it is because uh, reparenting or dealing with these issues uh, should not be done flippantly, uh, should be done carefully. But that's what that process was, is customized healing by a professional with with God involved um, for those individuals. Yes. Somebody else's journey may look completely different. And what questions or observations are seen within that counseling journey will be different. The principles would apply, but it would be different. Um, and, and I just love that because it, it's, it's a great, a great example of what healing looks like and ongoing journeys. Cause I'm sure that wasn't like, okay, well this session, we just wrap that up. I guess we're good. Um, we might want to see you back in six months just to check in, but I think you guys are good now. Um, yeah. I mean, no, that's going to be ongoing. It's an experience. Yes. It began a different narrative. It began a new neural pathway. It's that, it's that restoration, that restoration. Yeah. Uh, it's the beginning. We are um, almost out of time here, um, which this seems to happen every episode. Uh, we get to talking and I love it. There's so much, um, you know, so I, I hope people as they listen in, you know, you're just coming back. Uh, if you don't have the full 50 uh, minutes or so, just, you know, keep on coming back and, and listen in as you can. But I wanted to give uh, you, Scott, an opportunity to speak right to the listeners. If there's something you want them to take away from this episode um, or the information in the context of this neurobiology uh, of, of trauma um, and uh, specifically attachment, um, if there's something you, you want to, them to take away, what would that be? One is to, to know that we're all broken. And that's really the beginning. And, and so if we, if we start this journey of discovery, God has made our bodies to be well. So 
he keeps us safe. So like you said, we have to attach to someone who might be not be handling our heart well to keep us safe, to, to compartmentalize it, to let it store in the body so the child can survive. So, the God, so God is so concerned for the child surviving that they can compartmentalize their trauma. So that when we become adults, when we get in tune with our bodies and we get, we feel those emotional chart, those memories coming, that's God's design to say, I'm going to show you what's there because it's time to heal. And if we're just in tune with that, when we can go humbly before God and say, we're broken, show me the ways of my brokenness, that I want more of you, it'll be shown to you. But it takes humility to say, no matter how much I think I'm functioning, I'm still part of fallen humanity. Show me the ways that I'm fallen and we'll find ways to heal. And what Townsend and Cloud say in their book, How People Grow, that through the ministry of reconciliation, it's not just between God and me, but it's between me and you. And that healing, James 5, 16, confess your sins one to another. That's not a formality. That's being known at deep levels to where you have right brain to right brain, empathic, unconditional love relationships with people who truly care. that aren't con concerned about just getting the sin out, but concerned with your struggle that can see you struggling, that, that cares you, that loves you deeply, not just wanting to cast out and say, oh, I see you and pointing fingers. First Peter 4.10 says, we administer, we are ministers of God's grace. So we have divine encounters. When I give you grace, you feel God giving you grace through me. The scripture is full of that. That God's plan A to heal is people and relationships. We're so individualistic in America that when we see you, it means me. But the world knows that you means us. And that Jesus said, I'm in your midst. When two or three are gathered, you find me. Yes, I'm a temple. But it's when we're together that salvation comes and heals. And, and to make it a safe place to look deep inside of my heart, just like Jesus did with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. He didn't cast one aspersion Zacchaeus way. He just said, I'm going to hang out with you, Zacchaeus. And through that unconditional positive regard, unconditional acceptance, unconditional love, just being in the presence of that love, Zacchaeus felt safe enough to look into his own heart and say, I'm broken. Have mercy on me. And I can imagine Jesus smiling and he said, ah, salvation has come to this house. I love that. I mean, that embodies all the the connecting people to education and resources and community so that they can have restoration and healing. And I tell you what, self-reflection happens a little bit more naturally when you feel safe and accepted and encouraged to do so. Um, yes. So, Scott, I know this won't be the last episode we have you on. There's lots more to talk about, but I want to thank you for for taking the time to come on this particular episode and break down, you know, what so many of our listeners have have asked about and doing it in in a beautiful way that's uh, Christ-centered and, you know, biblically based. Um, and, and thank you for your time and your expertise today. Nate, it's been great. I feel honored to be a part of the Ryan Waters and the LaShonda Suggs and the Rick Butts. I, I'm honored to be uh, in that that little circle. They're great people. They're all that.
And a big thank you to you at home for listening in on this episode. Uh, we're, we're proud of you for doing something about your journey of restoration and want to encourage you to stay on that journey of restoration. Keep on doing those things uh, that you're learning about and, and that are working. Um, we know it's not easy. We're right there with you. We understand. There's a whole community here at Grace Story of people that understand um, and, and we want to encourage you to keep moving forward. And, and speaking of that community, if you haven't already, head on over to GraceStoryMinistries.com and register for this year's conference. You can do the live viewing package for at home or uh, do the in-person registration and join us there. There's still a few seats left of our limited uh, supply of seats there. But one thing you can also do to help us grow this community is share this podcast. So in your iTunes or Spotify app, over on the right, um, depending on which app at the top or the bottom, there are three dots. If you just click on that, uh, there's a, a, a share uh, part that you can just tap on and share it to your Facebook or send a text uh, to somebody else and share this episode. Or if there's another episode that you really like that has had an impact on you, go ahead and take that one. Click the three dots, click share and share it with a friend. Uh, family member, someone you think can also use this resource of Grace Story Podcast. We're going to be at conference next week, uh, but after that, we'll be back with another episode of Grace Story Podcast. We'll see you then.